Interruptions are something we're fairly used to in life, and uh, interruptions used to be just the phone ringing at home, or maybe someone popping in on your office or at work or your workplace. Uh, these days, we've got uh, a sort of a heightened ability for life to be interrupted by things, uh, mostly because we're so easily distracted by things. And so I don't know how your workday begins, but for a lot of people, it begins by staring at a screen. And so to sort of ease into the staring at the screenness of our work, a lot of times what we do is we sort of visit the places we want to visit. So first we'll scan our Facebook page and then maybe check our other email. And then maybe if you're like me, you'll glance at your Twitter timeline and then you'll see that there's someone's posted a link about an interesting article about how bottled water is, you know, oh, well, let me read that. And then you read that article. So did you know that 40% of bottled water really comes from taps? And, you know, and you think, well, maybe I'm going I'm to share that with someone else. Then you put it on someone else's Facebook page. And then all of a sudden there's comments that are happening. And you're like, now I'm really into this. And an hour later... You haven't really done any work. Now, we won't tell your bosses, but, right? I mean, this is, we're, we're used to kind of interruptions or distractions that kind of happen in our, in our uh, work day or even in our day just because there's the capacity for it. And, and, and there's, there's conversations or studies that are happening by very smart people that study brains and whatnot that are trying to figure out, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Are we learning to multitask? Are we developing into more superior uh, intellects because we can pay attention to 10 conversations at the same time? Or is all of this making us dumber? You know, I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, but, but there's another kind of interruption that happens in our life, and it's not the distraction, itty-bitty interruptions. It's really the bigger scale interruptions that happen. It's the kind of thing where all of a sudden you were going this way in life and all of a sudden something happened and you said, oh, well, I guess we're not doing that anymore. I guess we're doing this. And sometimes it's an unpleasant interruption, uh, like losing a job or, 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 or an illness or something like that. And you say, well, I guess maybe we need to downsize or maybe we need to do this. Or other times it's a happier I- interruption, like, uh, like having another child or having a child and, and, and maybe sooner than some of you thought or whatever. And you think, well, okay, here we go. I guess we're, I guess we're going this way now, you know. And, and life has a way of changing uh, not always, and, and not following the script maybe we would have chosen. But if we think about it, there's probably some moments where when it happened, when the event happened, you weren't sure if this interruption was a good thing or a bad thing. Um, it, it, it appeared maybe like it was just going to be a distraction, but with the advantage point of hindsight, you kind of look back at it and you say, you know what, that turned out pretty good. And what was maybe a distraction turned out to be an intervention, turned out to be God or, 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 or uh, a person in your life kind of saving you or helping you redirect at a critical moment. And so it's difficult when you're in the moment itself to kind of say, okay, is this just an interruption that is like a distraction and we just need to ride through it? Or is this really an interruption that, is, that God is behind, that God is at work in? Last week we talked about, from Acts 8, we talked about the people of God being scattered and how they were scattered because of persecution and yet it's the Spirit of God that has a way of turning our scattering into His sending and His commissioning. Well, this week we're in our Acts series, someone said, call it episodes because we're used to TV series, so this is episode 11, the one where Saul gets knocked off his horse. This is Acts chapter 9, as a little friend's joke for you. 
Uh, Acts chapter 9 is the chapter in the scripture that we're in, and this is a story really of two interruptions, two people's lives being interrupted. We're used to hearing this story, and we kind of roughly know, okay, Saul was on the road to Damascus, and he sees a blinding light, and he gets interrupted. And, by the way, if you've been around church, people start to use this kind of jargon, and they say, yeah, I had a Damascus road experience. Now, for the rest of us that didn't grow, you know, the rest of you didn't grow up in church, you might be thinking, a Damascus road, what? Aren't we in Colorado? You know, so this, just, this is going to explain some jargon for you today, because this is one of the key stories. But it's, it's, it's an interruption of Saul's life, for sure, but there's also another dude's life who gets interrupted. His name is Ananias. Now, Ananias is a dude that's just following God, and all of a sudden he is told to go and meet with Saul, and his life gets interrupted. Really, just kind of to zoom out and know where we're going this morning, it's an enemy of God whose life gets interrupted and then commissioned by God, and the people of God whose whose life gets interrupted by God and then commissioned by God. Both two stories of people that get interrupted and how those stories kind of weave together. So turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 9, and we'll begin our exploration of this text. Okay, Acts 9 verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing out threats to murder the Lord's disciples, went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, this is what the followers of Jesus began to be called, began to be called either men or women, he could bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, imagine this. This is Saul. This is not some atheist, pagan, sort of evil, wicked person. This is a person who believes he's doing God's will, who believes he can show his devotion to God by persecuting these followers of the way. And so he's getting permission from the high priest to go into homes in Damascus of men and women and arrest them and throw them into prison because how dare you say that Jesus is the real Messiah and the king of all. That's politically subversive and that's, you know, on and on and on. Now, Just as an aside, sometimes we ask ourselves, how could person A do something so horrible or violent to person B? Oftentimes, the the road to that path begins with two, or at least contains two steps. The first is this belief that God is on your side, and you're right, and they're wrong. And so God justifies your cause. And then the second step is to begin to depersonalize the other person. And this is why when you think about political violence, sometimes it's because they disagree with our political ideology. And so, doggone it, we've got to go kill all those people. And you think about the stories of the 20th century where more violence was done in the name of political ideology than it was in religious ideology. So something happens along the way where you believe you're right and you've got truth on your side or God on your side, and then you begin to dehumanize or depersonalize the other, and you begin to say, well, they're not right, and they're less than human, and they deserve to be killed, and on and on it goes. Well, Saul finds himself in that line of thinking where he sort of believes that God is pleased with him, and he's living this way. But in fact, he's actually living against God. What he thinks he's doing in God's name, for God, with God on his side, ends up being quite the opposite. And so in verse 3, as he was going along, approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now this double name thing, Saul, Saul, what is this? You know, is, this uh, is this some sort of a you know, God 
stutter, stuttering here. You know, Saul's, well, we read our Old Testament reading today from Exodus. And when the bush that is burning but not burned up, and God speaks to Moses out of this bush, he says, Moses, Moses. There are many Jewish stories of God interrupting a person, calling a person, and that moment beginning with this double naming thing. Moses, Moses. Abraham, Abraham. There's, it's a kind of a storytelling device. And so Luke is telling us about Saul's conversion as if it were one of those stories of a significant person being interrupted and, and called the way Moses was and the way Abraham was and all of that. Now, I say this, this shouldn't unsettle you because you tell your stories using familiar storylines, don't you? If I were to say to you, well, tell me the story of how you came to faith, you'll pick from two or three different storylines. Storyline A is, I was super bad, and then Jesus saved me, and now I'm super good. Hallelujah, you know? Or storyline B is, I was pretty good, I grew up in church, but then it never was real to me, and then it became real to me, and then now I'm on fire for God, right? Most of us tell our stories in certain scripts that we've heard and familiar with. Luke is doing the same thing. He's telling Saul's conversion with a very familiar script and story, and, there, and, and there's more to it than this. But, it, but Jesus goes on, and he says, he says oh, Saul says, well, who are you, Lord? And he replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But stand up and enter the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now the men were traveling, who were traveling with him stood there speechless, because they had heard the voice, but saw no one. And Saul got up from the ground, but although his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, his companions brought him into Damascus. Saul is a picture for us of the enemy of God being interrupted by God and then being commissioned by God. Later on in this chapter, we find out what Ananias is supposed to tell Saul about his life, about his new calling. And, and, and Ananias uses this phrase. He says, you tell Saul, he's going to be my chosen instrument. And he's going to stand before kings and Gentiles and all of Israel. And you're thinking at that moment, that's it. That is what the call of God is like. And then God goes on, he says, and tell Saul how much he's going to suffer in my name. <laughs> I like this because this is what's sort of missing from our conversion moments. Raise your hand, everybody, as the organist plays. Does anybody feel like giving your life to a lifetime of suffering and hardship and living against the grain and being mocked and made fun of? If that is you, come, get up from your seat. No, we don't say it that way, do we? The Lord wants to make life work for you. The Lord wants to make everything in your life come together and be lovely. If you want this kind of happiness, raise your hands as the choir sings. Oh, yes. <laughs> now, I, I'm not mocking that. I'm just pointing out how different you are. You're like, yeah, right. <laughs> Too late, Glenn. I, I'm just pointing out how different that is than Saul's conversion. Interestingly enough, these phrases that he's going to be a chosen instrument who suffers, those phrases become a theme of Paul's theology. If you know a little bit about what Paul develops in his theology, he, there's a section in the book of Isaiah, the prophet in the Old Testament, who talks about there being a servant of God who will come one day. And then he talks about the servant suffering. And so there's this theme. Paul all of a sudden takes that thread and this thread, the servant who suffers, and he puts them together and he says, that's Jesus. Jesus is the suffering servant. Now, interestingly enough, because Paul saw Jesus' life that way, how do you think Paul saw his own life? 
as a suffering servant. And so many times Paul will open his letter and he says, I'm a bond slave of Christ. I'm a slave to the Lord. I suffer in these chains. I bear in my body the marks of this call of, of Christ. And so all of a sudden, he begins to see his own life the way he's come to see Jesus' life. And this is kind of a, a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I wonder sometimes if the way you understand the life of Christ affects the way you understand your own life as a follower of Christ. If you understand the life of Christ as Jesus dancing around doing party tricks and healing and causing stones to turn into bread and multiplying loaves and wine and all this stuff, then you sort of understand that the life of a follower of Christ is full of party and bliss and whatever. But if you understand that the vocation of the Son of God Himself was to share in our suffering and our death. And what do you think the vocation of the follower of Jesus is? Okay, chew on that. That's a side note. But Saul is like the enemy of God, interrupted by God and then commissioned by God. And most of us, when we listen to this, we think, okay, well, I, I mean, I don't, I don't really identify with that, Glenn. You know, when you said script A and script B, I'm more the script B guy. Like, I grew up in church, you know, like I didn't have a dramatic conversion moment. That's me. I grew up as a, ch- as a church kid. I mean, my parents were, were in church most, most of their, um, let's see, since they were married, they were in church, and I don't remember um, a Sunday, really, that we weren't in church. But, you know, the pressure was always so strong from people to kind of say, so, Glenn, when were you saved? So, well, I, don't, I mean, I, I don't remember exactly. Well, well, if you don't remember, hallelujah, little Glenn, today is your day. <laughs> You know, I'm like six years old and thinking, well, I don't want to go to hell, okay. But after about 267 times of saying yes, then you, start, then you have a new problem. Then you're like, well, which one was my real conversion moment? Was it that one or the one before? Which one was it? I want to say to you that not every conversion is like Saul's. It's not all this dramatic. Sean asked me on Twitter this morning, he says, so... So was Saul the only one who saw Jesus post-resurrection? Well, not exactly. There's these eyewitnesses and disciples and the, the, the earliest ones, followers, who Jesus appears to after his resurrection. But after his ascension, no one else sees Jesus physically except for Saul. Now, why is this important? It's important because early on, the qualification for being an apostle was you had to have been an eyewitness to the resurrection. This is why Paul, in our New Testament reading from Galatians, Paul, he's you know, changed his name now, he's writing, he's trying to say, look, I saw him. It's almost like that kid who's like got the chip on his shoulder because everyone else is saying, you didn't really get the thing, did you? You're not a true apostle because you, you know, it's like, your doctorate's honorary, isn't it? I mean, you didn't earn this thing. You're not really an apostle, are you? you know? and, and, and Paul's kind of saying, no, did too. I saw him in a vision. You know? So this is why his conversion story is so dramatic is because of his calling. But most of us don't have dramatic conversion moments like that. Some of us do, and that's great. That's wonderful. But the question is, how do we see ourselves in this story? How are we like Saul, the enemy of God? Well, Glenn, I'm, I, I told you I'm a kind of a good person. I don't really, I'm not an enemy of God. Interestingly enough, when Saul begins to develop his theology, he's become Paul, he's a follower of Jesus and all this stuff, he writes this letter to the church in Rome. And in Romans 5, he says this, But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God 
through the death of his son, how much more, since we have been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Now, wait a minute, Paul. Are you saying that all of us were at one time like enemies of God? I mean, is that really, that's, that's kind of strong language. One of the remarkable things about this story is Jesus says to Saul, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me. So I'm sorry, I'm persecuting those people, those heretics. No, no, you're persecuting me. The biggest deception about our actions is that it only affects people. That sin is really only horizontal. Sin only has a horizontal dimension. So, well, I, you know, I offended him or I, you know, I kind of hurt Aaron's feelings the other day, but it's just Aaron and he'll get over it and he's kind of, he was kind of rude to me anyway. And we don't realize that sin has a vertical dimension. That every act like that is not just a mistake or, yeah, whoops, I messed up. It's, we've sinned against God. So we'll glad that's, I mean, that's, I, hey. That's a little heavy. Right. This is why I think you don't really want a Damascus Road experience. Could you imagine Jesus says, hey, do you want me to tell you that everything you've done here is really an act of opposition against me? Wait, what? You? I thought I was just kind of messing around with drugs and this stuff or pornography. I thought I was just kind of just struggling with my issues. No, 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 you're actually sitting against me. Now it just got real. Because then all of a sudden there's no private little issues. Because, look, if sin is only horizontal, then the logic of our culture is, well, as long as I'm not hurting anybody, then I can do this, right? So I'm not hurting anybody, I'm just doing X, Y, and Z. But if you begin to see sin as not just horizontal but vertical, then you say, well, I may not be hurting anybody, but I am living in opposition. I'm living against God. That's really bad news. That's kind of a bummer. But the really good news is that it's we who insist on treating God like our enemy, not God who insists on treating us like his enemy. Most of us kind of grew up in a church where what we got this picture of our whole life was God's mad at you. And so God wants to, God sees you as his enemy. But see what Paul's saying in Romans is he's saying, look, you were his enemy. You were insisting on going against him. But all the while God was working to reconcile you. I think about this with my kids who have fortunately disappeared from the service so I can say this. Once in a while, they'll get in a fight. Once in a while, I mean, they are such good kids. Lord, help them. Once in a while, they get into fights with each other. Like every day. Like twice an hour. And often, we'll have to pull them apart from each other. Okay, come on, let's talk about this. Because as a parent, you understand that a sin against your brother or sister is a sin against you. You say, wait, this is not, not in my house. And sometimes as I'm holding a child who's really upset in that moment and they're angry and all this stuff, I'm trying to hug them and they're trying to kick me. Because <laughs> they don't want to they don't want to be there. But he did this, she did it. And I'm just Later on, Paul tells the story of his conversion and he says that Jesus said to him, Why are you kicking against the goads? I don't know what goads are, but 
this image of kicking against something, I think is interesting. That we were living against God and God said, look, I know, that upsets me, that, that angers me. There is an anger in this. It does personally, it is an affront to me. But I am the God whose mercy trumps his wrath. I am the God who decided to work to reconcile you. I'm the God that decided to, to, to bring you in. And you're going like this. Right? So we were enemies of God, but we've been interrupted. And God's interruption is really our salvation. God's interruption is really our intervention. It's God coming through. So, okay, so, 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 so what do we do with this? Repentance, when you see it this way then, repentance really begins to become a beautiful word. Because if you grew up in a guilt-driven sort of Christianity, repentance is the way that people manipulated you to getting you to do what they wanted you to do. Well, you better repent or else, and you better repent and, and give some more money to the church, you know, whatever it was. And repentance was a way to twist people's arms. But when you see it in this light, that it's God who's reconciling us Repentance is like the child, one of my children saying, okay, okay, I'm sorry. Yes, I shouldn't have done that. And stop kicking against our Father who's bringing us in. Repentance is the way of life. We respond to God's interruption through repentance. I want to read you this quote here. But before, I'll just tell you a brief little story. Um, Maybe a year ago or so, I met with... um, the priest from the Eastern Orthodox Church here in town, and I wanted to ask him about spiritual formation because it was a lot of what I was thinking about. And most of us as like independent, uh, you know, Protestants, we don't think, what's spiritual formation? I don't know what that is. I'm just saved and I'm going to go to heaven, right? But for centuries, Christians have wanted to know, how do I live to actually become like Christ? And that's the word for that, the phrase for that is spiritual formation. And I was expecting some sort of, you know, profound answer like, well, these are the secrets of the way, you know. And he says, oh, spiritual formation is fairly simple. It's repentance. It's repentance, I mean, that's sort of what I did at conversion, right? So no, no, repentance is how you breathe in and breathe out. It's the way you live. It's part of life itself. Repentance is the way that we recenter our hearts. So listen to this. This is from Bishop Callistos Ware, who's one of the theologians in the Orthodox Church. He says it this way. Repentance means not self-pity or remorse, but conversion, the recentering of our whole life upon the Trinity. It is not to look backward with regret, but forward with hope, not downwards at our shortcomings, but upwards at God's love. It is to see not simply what we failed to be, yes, there's, that's part of it, but what by divine grace we can now become. To repent is to open our eyes to the light. To repent is to wake up. I love that. To wake up. Repentance is not this guilt-driven, manipulative thing. It's this way of saying, you know what? God, I still need your grace. And you can tell the way you're growing in grace by the level of how we repent in some ways. We used to repent of like the major, the biggies, right? The big ones, the actions. Now we begin to repent of attitudes and thoughts. And, And I think if you talk to someone who's been saved a long time, they'll tell you, you know... The longer I've been walking with Jesus, the more I realize how much I need him. Oftentimes people say that. So you know what? I realize I, there's a lot of selfishness in me. There's a lot of pride in me. There's a lot of fear in me. There's a lot of... And so 
repentance becomes our way of breathing out and breathing in and saying, God, I'm recentering on you. This is why we have confession every Sunday. Someone said to me earlier this week, you know, they heard that the confession prayer is kind of such a downer, you know. Most merciful God Almighty, we confess to you that we've sinned. We've not loved you with our whole hearts. You know, all right, but who has, you know. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. You know, have you seen my neighbor, you know. It's like, gosh, such a downer every week. It's not, look, confession and repentance is not about begging for God's mercy. It's about glorifying God's grace. It's about continually saying, God, it's always been your grace. It's your grace that began my salvation. It's your grace that's completing my salvation. It's your grace that will bring me whole on that day. It's always been your grace. Repentance is my way of admitting it and acknowledging it and coming to terms with it and waking up to it and seeing it, breathing it in. St. Augustine wrote in his Confessions, he says, I, Not for love of my wickedness, but for love of your love will I retrace my wicked ways. In other words, I'm not saying these things because I want to glamorize my wickedness. I'm saying these things because it glorifies your grace. It shows you how great you are. We respond to God's interruption through repentance. If we go further down in the text here, Acts 9, and pick up the story in verse 10. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he replied, Here I am, Lord. It's interesting. Saul asks, who are you, Lord? I get the sense that you're master, sir, Lord, but who are you? Ananias says, here I am, Lord. I, I, I kind of recognize that this is you. I've been walking with you. I'm not an enemy of God. I'm the people of God. And he says, and the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight. At Judas's house, look for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and place his hands on him so that he may see again. But Ananias replied, uh, Lord... I've heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here in our town, he's got authority from the chief priest to imprison all who call on your name. This is Ananias saying, I think you got the wrong Ananias. It's not going to work. I mean, I'm not going to do that. You know who this guy is? Verse 15, the Lord said, Go, because this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the people of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And I says, Okay, now that word I can bring to him. <laughs> how much he's going to get it. And so Ananias departed and entered the house and placed his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he could see again. And he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, his strength returned. Ananias represents for us the people of God who are still being interrupted by God and commissioned by God. I'm not sure what we think following Jesus is when we signed up for it. But I'll tell you, it means being interrupted by God, letting your comfort be challenged, letting your patience be tested. I mean, think about this. This is, if the church made lists of public enemies, Saul would be like public enemy number one. I mean, this guy is like, no, he is literally a threat to their life. And God says, Ananias, go to his house. Excuse me? 
No, sir, will not. You can speak to him through a vision, you can give him the whole gospel in a vision. You don't need me. Nope. Isn't this interesting? Sure, God could work in people's lives without us. I just think he prefers to work through us. I think that we respond to God's interruption. We participate in God's interruption through our obedience. He wants our obedience so that we can participate with him in his interruption of our own lives and of other people's lives. I was thinking all this week, I thought, who, who is this? Who is Saul for us? Who's the person whose house you would never go into even if God said, go into their house, they're ready? I said, no way, uh-uh. I mean, think about this. What if there was a person who was a known member of Al-Qaeda and word comes to you and says, this person I think wants to talk about Jesus. Yeah, right, I'm not going. I ain't going. God bless America, I'm not going. (laughs) Who are you following? What if it's a person that doesn't share your values? Someone who votes differently. Someone who's chosen a different lifestyle. Someone who has all kinds of choices that are the opposite of your choices and what you stand for. What if they're a (gasps) Democrat, (laughs) Republican, (gasps) liberal, (gasps) conservative, (gasps) all the places we draw lines? And what if God is saying, would you go into their home? Saul not only goes into his home, or Ananias not only goes into his home, he says, Brother Saul. Now that's amazing. The Lord has spoken to me that you're in this place and you're ready for him to work in your life. Now maybe where our way is not as direct, whatever it may be, but Ananias believed that. He obeyed. He believed that God was at work and says, all right, you're an enemy, but I'm going to call you Brother Saul. That's a mind-blowing way to live. If the church lived that kind of love, wow. Wow. The kind of love where God, you are convinced that God is telling you that people who treat you like you're you're their enemy, that you're able to go and treat them like your brother? After all, isn't that what God has done with us? After all, isn't that what God has done with us? The people who treated him like an enemy, God calls into being his sons and daughters. And the people that come and treat us like enemies Are we able to go and be people who speak forgiveness and life? Pastor Brady and I were talking about this earlier this week, and he was kind of having some fun with the idea that Luke tells us that something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. And he was saying, he's like, you know, (laughs) there's a lot of patience for someone who's physically blind. If someone was physically blind and visited you and they ran into the coffee table and bumped stuff, I mean, no, no kind, normal person would be like, you idiot. Watch where you're going. I can't. You know? Yeah, yeah, no, you don't do that. You have lots of help. Let me help you. But why then, with people who are spiritually blind, are we so angry? Why, with people who are spiritually blind, are we so 
bothered and antagonistic. In fact, if anybody's picking fights, sometimes it's us. What's that about? When we are supposed to be the ones that say, you know what? There's scales still on their eyes. Maybe we can go into their home and be Jesus interrupting their lives. What if you're an agent of interruption in someone else's life, but your way of interruption is not violence or anger or hate, but love and forgiveness and words that say, brother, sister, that's mind-blowing kind of love. That's what Ananias does. I was thinking about how this might look in our lives. And the first story I thought of, the first sort of thing I thought of was the pastor we met in Swaziland when we went at the end of March. A team of us here from this community went to Swazi. Swazi is an independent kingdom within, it's like geographically within South Africa, but it's independent as its own kingdom. I think it's the last remaining monarchy, but it's got the highest HIV rates. There's a number of things that contribute to that. And uh, through a partnership with another organization, a Christian organization, we're able to um, sort of adopt two communities. And New Life Church sort of is in partnership with these two communities, and it works through child sponsorship. And there's a whole thing there that is really remarkable. And so when, you, when we went there, we saw the local pastors who were reaching out to these communities and got to meet them. Our first day at the first community, we drove up, and, and all we saw were mud huts, literally with thatched roofs and and then we kind of saw some buildings, but these buildings were old and run down and they were graffitied and all this stuff. Come to find out, there were abandoned hospital buildings. And, and then within the first hour of being there, we uh, were going to meet in one of these buildings with, um, with the pastor who had moved his whole family, as it turned out, to Swaziland to serve these people. And then as we learned more about it, we realized that this pastor is actually originally from Zambia and not from Swaziland. And he moved his whole family to follow the call of God. And, and, and actually, they were living in one of those abandoned hospital buildings. And then you think, geez, talk about a person who allowed his comfort to be interrupted for the sake of obedience to God's interruption of someone else's life, right? But, you know, a story like that kind of lets us off the hook because most of us are like, well, that's not me, praise God. He hasn't called me to that yet. So, so, so what is it for you? Earlier this week, Jesse was telling a story to Rebecca and I. And he, a, a lady had called New Life, I guess, last week and said, hey, I'm a single mom. I'm just moving to town. I need help moving in. And Rebecca, the call was routed to her, and she called a few of our volunteers and called Jesse. And uh, so Jesse, on a Tuesday evening, Monday evening, one of the nights of the week, one of the days of the week, um, was, was there helping her unload the boxes and move in. And so when he's telling me this story, it's Thursday. And he's saying, you know, there's honestly like part of me in the back of my mind is kind of thinking, you know, how did she get to where she is, right? Now don't judge Jesse. I do that. You do that. We all do that. You see someone and you think, oh, well, yeah, how did they end up there, huh? Because we believe this myth that everybody is only the, the, the result of their choices. But life... It's more complex than that. So anyway, so he's helping her move and he's done. And on Thursdays, he's telling us this story. Rebecca says, actually, here's the rest of the story about this woman. And she begins to tell us what's the situation that she's trying to escape that's dangerous. 
And it's remarkable because that's an ordinary thing. That's an interruption to a weeknight. That's an interruption to an evening. And yet, could it be that through obedience, Jesse is participating in what God is doing? Yeah. So the lady then asks, so, so well, what church are you from again? She's not from our church. I told you this last week. We're serious about it. Being the people of God in a city means bringing the shalom to the city, whether or not they're in the people of God yet or not, right? So here's a person who doesn't go to our church, not on our membership role. We were, we're not always able to help, but we were able to help in this situation. But it was an interruption. <laughs> what are those moments where an interruption becomes a way of participating with God? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was talking about life to, in, his, in his book, Life Together, about the community, the people of God. It's a great, thin little book. And he starts talking about how we think we're wise enough to make plans for our day. And so that's fine. You make plans in your schedules. But at some point, you have to understand that there is someone wiser who may allow things to come into your day. Now, this is not carte blanche license to just sort of pay attention to every ADD moment you have, okay? <laughs> a bird. <laughs> but listen to this quote. He says, what does it matter if our, plan, our own plans are frustrated? Is it not better to serve our neighbor than to have our own way? That's amazing. Because sometimes all along the way, you'll hear about something. You'll meet someone. And maybe it's the time to just kind of say, wait a minute, wait a minute. you're at work, you know, you're kind of typing away at your desk, you know, whatever. Someone says something like, wait, what, 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 what? Close the laptop for a moment. Say, what did you just say? And that becomes a holy moment, a divine interruption. What if it's that? Look, our city is in this place now where hundreds of people have lost homes. and You have no idea what conversations, what places, what moments might be God's way of saying, hey, I'm still the same God that is at work in this world. I'm still the same God that interrupts people's lives and alters their courses. I want you to repent and, and respond to my interruption of your own life through repentance, but I also want you to join me in this work through your own obedience. Amen? And really, the one leads to the other. Because if you live every day kind of realizing in a fresh way, okay, God, yes, Lord, I respond against your grace. God, I repent and I confess only as a way for your grace to break into my heart. All of a sudden, when you run into people who are living against God, guess how you begin to see them? Differently. Because if you aren't living this life of repentance, guess what happens? Spiritual pride. Well, I would never make those choices. And so God comes to you and says, Ananias, go into their house. No way, I would never do that. But when you're the person that lives this daily breathing in and breathing out of repentance and receiving God's grace, you understand how dependent you are on Him. Then when you see others who are living against God, you say, you know what? It's okay, it's okay. God could still break in in their lives. And maybe he'll use me. Is there anybody this morning that you've written off? Is there anybody that you've said, no way, that'll never happen, that person? Maybe this morning as we get ready to come to the communion table, we could do two things. We could repent of our own small selfishness. We could repent of our own living against God ways. 
And we could say, now God, use me. Let me be a person that you'll use to interrupt someone else's life. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning. We ask that your spirit would soften our hearts, Lord. Thank you that you're the God who calls to us even while we were your enemies, made a way for us to be yours. Lord, teach us to freely and willingly and gladly confess the places and the ways that we are living against you. And then, God, make us people who are quick to obey you so that we can join you in your work of interrupting others. In Jesus' name, amen.